Hi there, welcome to the NLP Zone podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Luxford, and in episode two, I'm speaking with an absolute NLP guru named Ivan Billen, data science manager for Trust You. In this episode, we will break down what it's like to manage an NLP team and how it compares to managing a software team. We will also dive into open source in NLP and recent advancements in NLP. And lastly, chatbots and its five different levels. Ivan is quite the active guy on social media and he puts out some really insightful content. So I suggest you give him a follow on LinkedIn and feel free to connect with him there. I'm super excited about this episode. I hope you get a lot of value from it and enjoy the show. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So from uh, academic background, I uh, initially studied linguistics um, and then eventually uh, moved into computational linguistics. I've been in the academia for about 10 years, actually, quite a while, and I've seen this um, how the NLP has transitioned from these like rule-based and statistical approaches to neural approaches. And from the industry side, I've worked in multiple data-related roles. So I worked as a data engineer, um, then later as a data scientist, and since about two years, I'm actually an engineering manager. Um, I'm managing an NLP team um, and a separate software engineering team. So your, your background has transitioned, um, as you mentioned, from the what did you say the computational linguistics and the standard linguistics before? Um, how did you get into NLP and what made you want to get involved in that area? Right. Um, I mean, I was always interested in languages, right? And uh, after studying linguistics, I was thinking um, a lot also about to actually go into uh, computer science. Yep. But uh, back then, um, actually, I didn't know that computational linguistics existed as a, like a separate field. And yep. after uh, my initial idea was to go to computer science, but then I did some more research and I found out that this actually exists and it, it sort of clicked, hey, this is great. This is like a combination of language um, understanding of uh, linguistics and computer science altogether. And that, that sounded very interesting to me. So um, I'm actually, I'm glad I did that and tried it and uh, has been a great journey afterwards. Yeah, I mean, by the looks of your, your profile and our conversations, it looks like it's been the, the right path for you. Um, did you, did you, have you always worked in Germany or is it a choice to come to Germany purely because of the, the advancements in tech that they have here? I initially come from Ukraine and mm. that's where I also studied linguistics. Um, and so eventually I, I moved here actually just for family reasons okay. <laughs> unrelated to tech. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did choose to go to come to Munich uh, because it, it, it was a, is a great hub uh, of, you know, of education. You have one of the best German universities here, LMU, TUM, um, and you also have lots of great companies um, here as well. So yeah, no yeah absolutely right. Munich is a, a very powerful affluent area for, for stuff like that very different from Berlin and obviously each have their, their pros and cons but um, yeah. it's an interesting insight so right now you sit as a, a data science and engineering manager at trust you you've been there for is it seven years five years five years <laughs> forgive me <laughs> um, can you explain what trust you's main area of business is and your role at the company 
Right. So um, at Trustio, we um, NLP is in the core of, of most of our products. What we do is that we work mainly in the tourism industry. We collect um, reviews, for example, hotel reviews or restaurant reviews, and then we build up um, really detailed analytics insights out of those reviews. So, for example, um, if you're a hotel manager um, and it's a huge hotel, you get you know hundreds of thousands of guests every year, um, you will be overwhelmed with, with the amount of reviews you get. And you will also not be able to read all of them because many guests write their reviews in their native language, right? So you'll see reviews in, in very different languages that as a manager you probably want to understand. So what we do is we collect those reviews yeah. for specific hotels. We analyze them, we extract specific phrases that have a sentiment and that belong to some very specific category, about, uh, talking about something in the hotel, I don't know, for example, uh, food at the restaurant or specifically beer or uh, menu and things like that, or about the room, uh, if the bed sheets are clean and if the bathroom is, is uh is new and modern and, and hmm. so on um, and so and then uh, we also in our solution we support 23 languages right now so we we can actually extract those insights from for example um, Chinese reviews uh, Thai reviews from German French and so on we support a lot of languages yeah uh, and so as a someone as a hotel manager you would just be very quickly able to see what's going on in your hotel, um, what needs improvement, where you need to modify things and uh, so on. And so you get a very also detailed overview. You can dig through very specific phrases from reviews that we extract as well if you want to know more um, yeah, what's happening in the hotel. Excellent. As you mentioned, you've been there for five years. Uh, initially, you started off as a data engineer. Moving up to your position, you've, you've been promoted, was it four or five? times in, in, in different positions so four times yeah. four times yes yeah, so that's pretty amazing and uh you know how much has things advanced and, and uh, grown within trust you you mentioned there's 23 languages when you started how many languages were being used back then good question i think it was around 15 or something like that so it was already quite a lot uh, we built up on top of that uh, for sure. We added a lot more languages. Um, I mean, the team has grown. I think I, when I joined, the data teams have been, I don't know, five to 10 people. Now it's like 30 engineers. So you definitely see a lot of growth, not just in the product, but in the company itself. Um, so that, that was great to see. And then from technology standpoint, we also have uh, tried different approaches. We sort of, also implemented a lot of neural uh, NLP into our yeah. solutions. And uh, initially it was, you know, again, a lot of uh, domain specific uh, approaches, rule-based and statistical approaches. And we are sort of over time also using the latest uh, advancements in the NLP as well. Yeah, yeah. And how are those, um, how are those languages chosen? Are they based on most commonly used languages of course like for example standard english and chinese and stuff like that and then how were the the extra seven from when it was 15 to 23 how were they decided what are they based on analytics or right i mean uh, i think the the main decision driver is still um sort of product our outreach does it make sense to build our nlp solution for a new language if 
we don't sell it to anyone, right? Or or if there are not enough guests who live previous in that specific language. So first and foremost, it's a sort of product decision. We look mm -hmm. at, you know, is there a market for, for that specific language? Um, and then of course, it's also partially a technical decision because uh, as you know, I mean, NLP right now works great for English, but yeah. for <laughs> other languages, it doesn't work so great. So especially when you have languages that don't have much sort of resources available online, right? Where you don't have that many texts, you, you don't have sort of training data available to you. So that's, that's very complex then to actually build an NLP model that works on this. For us, it, uh, actually, since we had, we had a lot of data, we, we collect the reviews from the internet and we had enough data for every single language to, to build something out of it. So for us, it was less of a technical decision, but more of a product decision, which language to work on. The thing that comes to mind to me straight away, I mean, it mentions on your profile, we've talked about it already, that you, you're, managing, you're managing NLP teams, but you're also managing the software and engineering teams. So I'm, I'm really curious to know, and I'm sure the audience would be interested to hear as well, what's it like, um, you know, managing the development processes, uh, you, know, you know, the comparison between an NLP data science team in comparison to, you know, let's say, you know, a standard software engineering team, how different is it? Right. Uh, I mean, it's quite different for sure. I sort of employ um, different approaches in both teams, right? So first of all, if when you're working with software engineering teams, the software engineering process is more, I would say, linear, right? You know, um, you have a technical spec, you, you build up your project, you test it and release it. And actually what you release usually is good to go, right? Clients use it and uh, there is a, a cycle to it as well. You have to go back, you have to iterate on improving bugs, you have to add features. But I think it's it's less of a cycle compared to um, data science, right? In data science, you you do the same. You build your product and your project, but you after you release it to the clients, the work just starts. Really, you have to um, keep on improving on your data. You need to collect more data. You need to retrain your models. You need to monitor. Uh, how your models are performing, do you need to retrain them more often, uh, right, if you're using neural uh, approaches for NLP. Um, and then it's sort of iteration after iteration, you have to retrain the model, then you have to redeploy it, then you have to make sure it actually works properly. And uh, it's a, it's sort of a cycle, uh, much more than it is in software engineering. Yeah, so by your, by your response to that, my, my take is that it comes across more difficult to, to manage an LP team. Am I right in saying so? It's hard to say. I mean, it's just different. Really, you have to have like different expectations and it, it's uh, just different attitude to it, right? Um, and when you're managing data science teams, you have to be ready, right? You're doing a lot of research as well and you have to be ready to uh, you know, accept that some research just doesn't go anywhere, right? That sometimes you you try out a new neural network approach and it somehow it doesn't work with your specific uh, task. And then you mm -hmm. have to say, okay, we have to scrap that. Let's learn what we can from that and start try try out something new. Whereas in software engineering, that's different, right? You more or less when you start working on something, you have a 
good plan of what what kind of technology you're going to use and how you're going to implement it. Um, so there's less uncertainty, I would say. There's still uncertainty, but it's it's sort of different. I mean, you also had to apply different approaches to um, sort of how do you structure work as well within the teams. So yeah. in software engineering, for example, it's uh, Scrum is, is very popular, right? You have sprints, you have very defined goals for a sprint. Uh, whereas in, I think in data science teams, you can also do Scrum, but it's often easier to do something like Kanban where you are more flexible, right? If something fails or some, you know, some experiment doesn't go as expected, then it's easier to adjust and um, you, you can quickly change the scope of what you're planned for, for the week or two and sort of, yeah, quickly adjust. There's another uh, interesting idea out there for like managing data science teams that you can also try is you can try something called one day sprints and it's yeah. uh, quite extreme, but uh, <laughs> what you do is that, let's say, Part of the day you spend on um, creating your experiments, setting them, them up, and then you leave the neural network training overnight. And then in the morning you come back, you do uh, sort of um, an analysis of the results that you get, and then you sort of iterate again and again every day. You sort of set your experiments, let them run, analyze them, and then you can have like a one-day sprint where you sort of iterate over one set of experiments every single day. Right? Nice, like more of an intense process. Very nice. So, okay, well, touching on what you just said about like how um, the different tools that are used, um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the open source in NLP and the most pop and popular tools right now? Maybe ones that you're using uh, at TrustU, for example. Quite many out there, and it's actually <laughs> quite great to see that so much of those things are free and sort of free to use and, and the quality of those open source is, is really good, right? So right now, I think the top three or four are the Hugging Face Transformers, which is like a very neural based um, framework for NLP. There's Spacey, uh, which is, you know, we can use also for neural networks, but we also use it for rule-based approaches. Um, there's uh, LNLP that is more used for research um, there's also Spark NLP, and that one is more like, I would say also industry grade. It's um, mostly used when you have a, like a distributed cluster uh, of CPUs that you can use for that. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, there are quite a, quite a few more tools as well. Um, what's, I think what's really interesting is that all of those companies that, that created those tools, they still were able to build like a business model around them, even though their tools are open source. And they actually benefit a lot also from that because the community improves the tools. The community benefits from it. And then on top of that, they build some um, um, sort of um, product that they can then sell as well. So for example, um, the creator of Spacey, Explosion AI, they, they open source Spacey, but they have um, another system called Prodigy that you can use for data labeling. And that's sort of a premium feature that you, you can pay for. Same for Hugging Face. They, um, also have now this like auto NLP. Um, I was just going to ask you about product. that. <laughs> right. And they, they are making money out of that. And so sort of, I think this is great because both the community and those companies are benefiting from it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot about Hugging Face. They really are making a, a stamp um, on the market. They've just, as you mentioned, released that new interest. It, 
from what I understood correctly, the thing they've released, which allows anyone to be able to do this automated NLP, is that right? Right, right. It's true. I, I think all you need is to, um, like, they now support, I think, only three or four very specific tasks. So, for example, I think uh, sentiment analysis and question answering. But if that's what you need, right, then it's all you need, I think, is to provide some data. And then the this auto NLP solution will figure out what's the best neural network approach to use for your specific data. And then you can just, as well, I think within their system, you can even um, build up the deployment pipeline and sort of deploy it and, and you know, use it and give it directly to your clients. Does the introduction of that automated NLP tool have any effect on anyone in the industry who have chosen to do that job at all? Uh, you know, it's a long debate. I, <laughs> I actually, this, I've heard this debate already like five years ago when we were talking about AutoML, where yeah. it's like uh, you had a lot of frameworks as well and uh, uh, approaches and, and products, for example, from Google, I think they introduced so, some sort of enterprise AutoML approach. And back then already people were saying, oh, data scientists, well, you, you, we won't need data scientists anymore because yeah. AutoML will do the job for us. But it, I think it, it turned out differently. It's, you can use AutoML. Um, it works fairly fine for some tasks, but you will always need, I think, specific, um, you know, expert that can fine tune it even more and make it even perform even better basically yeah. and i think it's the same with nlp right uh, this automel tool is mainly uh, there to help you know startups for example who don't have maybe funds to to hire a full-fledged nlp team and they yeah. just want to build an mvp or something like that and that's a great way to do it and a very cheap way to do it as well yeah that's kind of how i sort of understood it so yeah appreciate that okay well uh I was actually on your, your LinkedIn the other day. Um, you put out some really good content. Some of it, you know, I've learned a lot from already. And uh, your most Thanks. recent one, I was quite interested to know a little bit more about. And I think it'd be quite good for um, you to talk about on, on the show. Um, it was your LinkedIn post where I read about what best practices for ML ops and data ops are established in the industry, according to as we, we talked about earlier, GPT-J, a, a clone of GPT-3. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, uh, last year, right, we, we had this uh, OpenAI, um, they published the paper on GPT-3, and then they also gave like API access to, to people to try it out. And that's like a massive language model that can uh, do a lot of sort of NLP tasks. It's sort of similar to auto NLP, but like on a much broader level and much more complex. And as before OpenAI didn't open sources, uh, didn't open source this. And I think Microsoft now owns the, the rights for this. And so what the community did is that they um, sort of tried to replicate from the paper um, how to build that massive model, language model. And they succeeded. They they first, I think, at the beginning of the year, um, there was a group. Um, I think they they are called Euler AI. They built a model called GPT Neo, and it's like a very small um, model that replicates GPT three, um, only to some extent. And then recently, I think only just a few weeks ago, 
there was a new iteration of that called GPTJ, um, sort of much more complex uh, and bigger language model. Still not as big as GPT-3 itself, but it, it, it works quite well as well on different tasks. Um, and so what I did is uh, you can really just ask that model anything, right? You hmm. can write a sentence and then it will auto-complete it for you. And so I just <laughs> tried this uh, ridiculous experiment. I, I asked the model, hey, what are the best practices in ML ops and data ops out there? And it was actually uh, the answers it gave were pretty good, right? It, it, it's sort of like a very smart lookup table, right? Because it was trained on a lot of data. I think it's like 10 or 20% of the whole internet or something like that. So it saw a lot of data and it can sort of on debatable on some level also do some reasoning. Um, uh, and I think it just saw also a lot of uh, blog posts uh, on the internet about MLOps and data ops, and it just sort of synthesized an answer based on that. Yeah, and uh, touching on the, you know, the MLOps side of things, it's, it's very, very new. And I do actually get a lot of clients that ask for people with industry experience, but it can be very seldom and hard to come by. We, we've talked about MLOps before and how businesses are uh, adopting those practices uh, in, in, their, in, their, in their work. Are you adapting those methods within TrustU? And, and, and if so, how, how is it intertwining with natural language? Right, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, yes, MLOps is relatively new and you see a lot of companies as well struggling to implement it because it's, uh, there, there aren't that many tools out there and it's also not very clear what ML ops actually means. I think there are, um, I'll try to like summarize it in, from my perspective, ML ops sort of includes uh, a few pillars. Right? The first one is you need data versioning. Right? If you definitely working with a lot of data, you're going to change it a lot. You're going to uh, generate training data and so on, and you want to track it somehow, right? So you need some sort of approach to versioning changes to that data. And there are fortunately some open source uh, tools for that. There's DVC, which is data version control that everyone can use. Um, and so that that's like the first pillar. Second one would be experiment tracking. So in the ML, you do a lot of experiments and you don't want to lose track of what's your best model, yeah, right? You run like 100 experiments uh, at a time you pick out one of them that's the best one then you change something you have to rerun it again and you should actually track all of that right because at some point maybe you need to go back to um, to something that you've tried before because it's apparently working better than you expected and right you just want to have it have a quick access to it there are some tools for it as well like uh, mlflow i think is an open source tool there are also some premium tools that allow you to do that like weights and biases is a, is a great example so and then related to that to experiment tracking you also want to have some sort of model registry right you're training a neural network model mm -hmm. and you're gonna train a lot of them and you're gonna have a huge list of, of those models and you just you don't want to just keep them in like a folder and just name it model one model two <laughs> model three right you want to actually track it and um, then for each model, you also want to um, um, put together the results that you got for it and an ability to also quickly switch back to a certain model if something goes wrong with, with a new one you deployed. Right? So that's like the third pillar is model registry. Then you want to have tests and 
automated tests. For NLP specifically, there has been a lot of work done, uh, I think since, since about last year. Um, in testing, there's now a new approach to uh, testing NLP models called behavioral testing, where you try to generate as many complex and um, sort of bias-prone examples as possible and test them out on your NLP model so that uh, you catch those issues before you actually deploy them to, to clients. And there are some great tools for it. There's checklist, there's text attack, uh, and you know, th these are great ways to test your NLP model before before you deploy it. And so, and then the next part, I think in MLOps is, it's important also is model deployment itself. Like you want to have a robust system that delivers new models to the clients very quickly and pain-free, right? So you don't want to, you know, train a new model and while you're releasing it to your clients, your clients don't have access to your system for an hour or two, right? You don't want that. You want to have some strategy where the clients can still access like the previous version of the model while you're deploying a new one. And there are also different approaches to do that properly. And then at the end, you also want to have data and model observability, right? You want to track how is everything you've deployed to the clients changing, reacting to new inputs? Has the data changed? Is your model still accurate enough? Do you need to retrain it? And you need some tools also for that, um, right? And I think that in data observability itself and sort of ML observability, there aren't many open source tools, but there are quite a few like paid tools. I think you can do that with something like Monte Carlo, Pachyderm, and, and there are a few more. Um, I think Amazon SageMaker also allows to do that. So yeah, these are like a lot of things, <laughs> but I think if you have at least one or two of them <laughs> implemented properly, that you're probably 95% ahead of any other AI company out there, because it's, it's really hard to have all of them uh, yeah. and it's really complex, but at least, you know, implementing some of those uh, best practices is, is really helpful. and. At Trusty, we, we try to, to do that as well, right? We, we, we run a lot of experiments. We have massive amounts of data, right? It's uh, a mil I mean, I think we have about a billion reviews in our database at this stage. Um, and we try to implement those practices as well. And, and they are very helpful. They save a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I mean, you, you don't need to then move files around manually <laughs> or, you know, remember where did you save results of all of your experiments and so on. So it sounds like the, uh, the introduction of MLOps is uh, definitely a positive thing. Um, whether people can't really decide um, what it is, it reminds me of DevOps because uh -huh. when I first started recruitment in Germany in 20, 2015, I initially began doing DevOps as a career. They said, Many people would just say, you know, it's a, more of a methodology rather than a physical thing because nobody, like you said with MLOps, nobody really knows what, what it is. They, one, one will have one theory of what MLOps or DevOps is, and then one will have another. And this is evident because I'd have many clients say, you know, I need a DevOps engineer with these, these, and these skills. And then the other one will say something completely different, whether it's more of an ops side or more of a, a software, software related in, uh, DevOps engineer and so on so it's interesting um just for, just brought me back to those days yeah it's yeah, quite no. interesting actually the um the other software engineering team that i manage now um 
we have a very strong DevOps setup and uh, you can really see benefits of that, right? We release updates like a couple of times per day to production. And that's something that data science teams today can only dream of, I think, because there's just not enough tools for that. It's very much more, uh, I mean, it's just different, right? Someone has to build up the infrastructure and approaches are a bit different, but the ultimate goal is to have sort of the same outcome as we have now with DevOps, that you are able to very quickly change something in your neural network model yeah. uh, and release it very quickly to the client. Do you think it's something that every, every business will be looking to adopt in the future, MLOps? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, yeah. Gradually. Let's see how long it will take. I mean, it also <laughs> took us quite a while to perfect DevOps approaches and practices. And I think it will also take some time for ML ops to be established in the industry. Yeah, it's always a familiar pattern where you get the certain companies that adapt it straight away. Then the others want to see how other companies do with it and they try it out. And then always you always get the people um, or the company, should we say, that perhaps never try and stick to their traditional ways. But I think you have to move with the times and try and adapt different areas the best way, you know, for the business. And, and, and if it's successful, great. If it's not, then of course there's always other ways. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are also risks involved and there yeah. are always risks involved with building AI models, right? Uh, and I think the biggest risk is if you start right away with like um, ML ops approach, even before you validate that your sort of MVP is actually sellable, <laughs> then maybe that's a problem. Maybe you, you shouldn't do it like that. But uh, uh, when you start, you build an MVP, you validate it, and that's the best time then to start implementing ML ops, right? Before you actually go with a final product to production to your clients, you should already have some, you know, at least some of those parts of ML ops established because it will make easier to change that final product afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, just touching on like good, you know, resourceful information. Uh, I was thinking earlier, one thing I actually really loved about our initial engagement Ivan, from the beginning was, was how resourceful you are. And I'm referring to our initial chat where you share with me the NLP Pandect. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> where you upload useful content about everything NLP for the public to come and use as they please. And you've you've managed to rack up, was it 1,500 stars now on GitHub? Right. <laughs> which is uh, really impressive. What's, what gave you the idea to put that together? And, and is there a purpose as to, as, as to why you do it? Yeah. Um... Right. Um, I have an interesting example from when I was studying at the university. I met one guy. We were preparing presentations mm -hmm. and he had locally like, I don't know, a few thousand presentation templates saved. <laughs> and he wasn't willing to share it with anyone. <laughs> so, and I, I think it's just, it's, it's a shame that we are not willing to share the knowledge. And so this was like a trigger for me eventually. I, I had a lot of this information just saved in some local documents or like my local wiki or something like that. And then I said, okay, I mean, there's enough for everyone. So I just sort of open sourced all of that. Um, and I mean, it helped a lot of people. I mean, it's it, my hope is that if you're trying to solve a specific problem um, and you're looking for resources, all you need to do is to go to NLP Pandect and just, you know, search for that 
problem or I don't know something specific about NLP and you'll find it there uh, and actually I've been um, expanding this this idea of of the pandect which is uh, old Greek for encyclopedia mm -hmm. I have two more I have one more uh, on microservices which is very similar it's a bit smaller um, but there are a lot of resources on microservices and how to build microservices and the third one I, I, I released just a few weeks ago uh, it's for engineering managers it's basically resources on how to be a good engineering manager and how to I don't know, things like prepare good retro or give good feedback and things like that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's amazing, honestly. Um, it brings me back to two of my, my favorite quotes or what people have told me. Um, I do a similar thing with regards to networking within the recruitment world. I want to constantly be approving, uh, improving and obviously networking with like-minded individuals uh, just to do better at my job and, and, and express my passion out to the network. And the quote that stood with me was, if if we share, we all win, which I thought was pretty powerful. There's no point keeping it hidden because, you know, one person can help you and then uh, someone else can, yeah, sorry, one person can help you and then you can help someone else, which is just like a knock-on effect. And the other one was, someone said, if you want to get the best possible feeling of joyfulness and you know just pure happiness from 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 doing something rather than doing something for yourselves do do, do something for for someone else and you won't get no better feeling than that someone that's you know for example use some information that you've put out there content wise and they've gone on to i don't know create something new uh, and it's you know it's gone into production or something like that there's no better feeling than that in my opinion yeah, that's true. I mean, those are great quotes. And, uh, you know, every time someone writes to me on LinkedIn, hey, thanks for these resources. It's like, uh, I'm so glad to see that, that it actually helped someone. Right. And as, as I said, I mean, there's enough for everyone, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, sharing information will not, you know, you won't lose anything by doing that. Yeah. No, amazing. So, so touching on um, the NLP pandect, uh, there's been some really interesting recent advancements in NLP in particular, um, how deep learning is gradually replacing these rule-based processes and statistical processes within neural networks and so on. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. And actually now sort of a bit of rivalry, uh, rivalry you could say. So there are two camps in NLP now, one camp that says, um, neural networks cannot effectively learn what languages and are not capable of reasoning. And there's another NLP camp that says, yeah, right, that, that's sort of proponent, proponents of AI and say, okay, things like GPT-3 can actually reason. Um, and so you, you see that uh, a lot. There are different NLP professors or, or people even from the industry advocating for, for those two things. Uh, and so it's it's... Hard to say which one is right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, I, I think there's merit to all of them. It really depends on the task and the problem you're trying to solve. And also depends on resources that you have available, right? If you don't have access to powerful GPUs or you just don't have enough uh, budget to, to sort of use those GPUs on the cloud, then um, 
and your task is fairly simple, then maybe it's easier to still use uh, some sort of rule-based approaches or statistical approaches. It also depends on how much data you have, right? If you want to use AI, you need a lot of data. So you need to either already have it generated from your users or you need to label the data. Um, whereas for other approaches, you don't need that much data, right? And then there are also other trade-offs. Trade -off. So for AI, AI is relatively hard to explain. So explainability tools also, there are tools for that, but uh, they aren't as advanced. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if you're using rule-based approaches, um, it's usually very easy to explain what your system is doing because you have like these very specific rules that you wrote for, for the system, right? But uh, eventually probably the AI approaches will take over. <laughs> Nevertheless, we, we see that already. There are quite a few interesting applications that came out of all so like GPT-3 and, and research related to that. Uh, and there are a lot of startups popping up also using those technologies. And it's uh, just, it's another thing. It also, like these GPT-3-like models, you don't really need, for example, a lot of data for them because they already trained on the massive amount of data and they um, can work on almost any task out of the box. With, you just need to give it a few examples and that model will understand what, what you want it to do. And that allows for startups to, to be built very quickly. And that mm -hmm. sort of allows to build these MVPs very quickly just through experimenting with those things. Whereas if you want to do rule-based approaches and sort of statistical approaches, then you need a lot more time, right? You need to invest a lot into the domain knowledge and really understand the task you're working on and spend time on that. So, I mean, there are trade-offs for all approaches out there to NLP. It really depends on what you're doing. You're right. I mean, I'm seeing more than ever um, startups popping up left, right and center. And it's really, really good to see, especially in the AI world. I, I can't remember the name of the website, but there's a an AI sort of startup website that talks about all the cool companies in Germany right now. And it breaks it down in all the sectors and stuff like that. Somebody from a research area done it. Um, I don't know if you've seen it before, but it, it's amazing. It's it, it, As I said before, it, it's great to see. Um, and that's where my sort of question comes to you from what you've seen out there, you know, being the king of content, <laughs> is there any notable, really cool startups that, that you think are really, really promising and like the sound of at this moment or any particular projects? Yeah. Um, I mean, I already mentioned, right. Hugging face and, and explosion AI, yeah. the, the makers of Spacey. Um, there are also a few more like really early stage startups. Um, I think one of my favorite ones is called Other Side AI. They basically try to help you save time on writing email. <laughs> basically, <laughs> all you need to do is you receive an email, the sort of this NLP solution reads it, and then you need to write just a few bullet points like as your answer. And the this NLP engine will write very formalized email answer based on your story points, uh, based on your points that you gave it. And it, it looks really cool. <laughs> I think, and it's actually trying to solve a problem that you know that everyone has, right? We're overloaded with email. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we want to quickly <laughs> answer to it. So I, I find that that interesting and innovative. Uh, right, there, there there are many others. Um, one other one is um, called Brasa. I think they are also doing a great job in sort of pushing the limits of chatbots. 
Um, yeah. They are, I think, based in Berlin. They also have like an open source version Rasa engine to build chatbots. Um, so yeah, there's another startup that I think it's really cool. Um, yeah, there are probably quite a few more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that I keep up to date with all these companies as much as I can. I'm very familiar with all the ones you mentioned, except the uh, the email one. What did you say the name was again? Was it other? Um, other side AI. That's it, other side AI. I could definitely do with that tool as well. <laughs> I think it's probably the most tedious task uh, doing an email, especially when you've got so much going on. And of course, you want to make it the best email possible as well. So that could be uh, really, really useful. Um, but yeah, so touching, you just mentioned chatbots, which uh, brings me to my next question quite conveniently, actually. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but... From my observation in the market, the most popular area of NLP seems to be conversational AI and chatbots. Just from what I see, it just seems to be booming everywhere, like lots of companies doing it. There's some startups, there's some big companies uh, that are adapting it, adapting it to their to their business model as well. So let's talk a little bit about chatbots. Uh, I, I really, really find it exciting. When I work with an AI company, um, in particular conversational AI, um, I get even more excited. Don't know why, but I just think it's a really cool area and to understand it's different types and different levels as well. So what's your take on chatbots and tell me a little bit about its, its different types as well. Sure. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, almost everyone wants to have chatbots now because I think all companies see sort of it would actually add a lot of value to what they offer, right? And we see, for example, very... Um, great results uh, of implementing chatbots for sort of banking systems. There's a great example in the US. I think the Bank of America has a chatbot called Erica. Uh, and I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've never used it myself because I think it's only available in the US, but it's like super helpful to people. It can answer lots of questions about finances. It can find information very quickly. So you see it like really is adding value to you know, industry that has nothing to do with NLP. And and at this stage, also almost every website you go to, there's like a pop-up, hey, <laughs> there's a chatbot. If you have any questions, we can answer them uh, through the chatbot. And sort of everyone tries to, to have those chatbots. But I think also chatbots are one of the more complicated sort of subfields of NLP. Yeah. Um, because if you... You, you actually interact with the chatbot and it's, it's very easy to see that it's just a robot sometimes, right? It's, uh, it's very easy to, to see, okay, it's just a chatbot. It, it, it can't really answer my questions correctly. How do I call a real person? <laughs> <laughs> I think I have that same hands-on experience with, with chatbots. Like, you're absolutely right. If I'm like, I don't know, I need to call, get in touch with LinkedIn or Skype or Amazon, when you ask a complex question, it, it just says something completely off <laughs> and you're like, where's the nearest number? But the trouble is these big companies, they don't really provide a, a, an easy contact number. So that, that does make me think, how far do you think chatbots and conversational AI, AI can, can really go in our lifetime, let's say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, um, I already mentioned Rasa. Um, yeah, yeah. They sort of last year, I think they came out with this classification of uh, levels of 
chatbots. And it's very similar to classification that we have for self-driving cars, right? We have like five levels of self-driving cars and we are like, I don't know, at level three where, you know, you still need to sit, uh, sit at the wheel and if something goes wrong, you have to like <laughs> act <laughs> quickly. And it's very similar in chatbots. There are also five levels of AI according to Rasa, uh, of, of chatbots according to Rasa. And we are also around like level three. So the, the first two levels are like very basic chatbots that do Q&A, right? Uh, very specific question you are, you ask them and then can give you an answer the third level is uh, what they call contextual uh, contextual assistance and that's where the chatbot can also figure out what you actually want from it right you don't need to specifically write a very specific question and the chatbot will also remember sort of previous answers it gave or previous contexts that sort of previous conversations as well and that's like level three and that's where we are around right now, I, I would say. Uh, and then you go up to level four and five, these are more advanced forms of chatbots. Level four would be called consultative assistance. And basically the idea there is that that kind of chatbot can like, really understand what you want from it, like the needs that you have. You just write something about your life to a chatbot and the chatbot given this like ambiguous input can figure out, oh, uh, how can I help you, right? If you mm. write, hey, my, uh, I don't know, I need money for, uh, to pay for university <laughs> or something like that for my children. And the chatbot will say, oh, here are your options to get a credit or to sell a house or stuff like that, right? It, it can understand this ambiguous input and then translate it into sort of actionable points to give to you. And then level five, is like the most advanced AI chatbot that can sort of understand everything on very high level detail. And you can also then ask it very, very specific questions about specific domain or topic. And it should, should be able to give you sort of an expert level answer on sort of any specific topic, right? And that's, I think we're still quite far from that, but um, we're, we're moving that direction. Um, we'll probably see soon also more chatbots that use like this gpt3 like models yeah because they can understand context much better they have seen a lot of data they understand a lot of domain specific knowledge um but since like this it's still like proprietary technology from OpenAI and microsoft <laughs> i actually hope that these like uh, community-based clones can soon be like more used even more and, and everyone can have access to them and from that we'll probably also build up better chatbots over time yeah i mean <laughs> thinking about those five levels it you know it's amazing enough to be to get where we are now it, it blows my mind to think we could get to to level five because it reminds me of like if i was texting a friend and uh, if i did it over text what I say in that text can be interpreted completely differently because there's no emphasis on my tone, whether I'm being sarcastic, whether I'm emotional and so on. So it can be read wrong. So I always say, let's say if you was having a debate or an argument, I always say deal with it on the phone because it can come across wrong. So if we're having that challenge over text with human to human, it blows my mind that we could even get that same interpretation with uh, a robot, a chatbot. Yeah, let's see. I mean, reading emotion and as you've said, like being ironic, 
that's the hardest part for AI to understand <laughs> that I think there's no solution right now to understand irony and things like that so that there's still a long way to go and we NLP specialists have a lot of things to to still fix <laughs> before we get to level five I would say yeah I imagine it's a it's a lot harder to advance within this sort of area in comparison let's say computer vision where everything is generally black and white you know you see what you see and if you see a, a red car you're not going to say oh it's a, it's a house or something like that in comparison to the complexity that we've just talked about in the chatbot yeah that's that's also true i mean computer vision has its own complexities but yeah but since we're dealing with language there's just first of all there are many languages and yeah. then every language is so complex that you know you can write so many sentences you probably can't <laughs> can't generate all of them at once right you, always a new sentence you can say because there are just so many words you can combine together so yeah it's definitely very complex yeah and um sort of touching on towards uh stuff that i want to ask you about let's say something more more personable uh to you what would you say is the most interesting nlp project that you've worked on i worked before uh, a few years ago actually uh, there's a task called author obfuscation and it basically there is a, a set of tasks related to this and uh, it's one task is author profiling where from a text you can figure out who actually wrote this text was it like I don't know, male or female or what age and sort of very controversial yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can see that is can be used by you no know, I don't know some agency to try to identify a whistleblower or something like that and that's not a good thing but it is doable i i worked on on those tasks and it's actually doable to sort of reverse engineer a text and figure out who or what kind of person wrote it and there's sort of a, a separate field to that that tries to combat that and that's called uh, author obfuscation as the idea is that you write text if you just leave it as it is and someone has this author identification system or profiling system, they can figure out sort of more or less who wrote it. And what you do with an author obfuscation system, you input the text and that system has like an NLP engine behind it that completely rewrites your text. Yeah. And the text has exactly the same meaning, but it just wrote it in a different way. It has restructured sentences. It has maybe introduced some errors on purpose like grammar errors and maybe remote some other grammar errors and sort of just really rewrote the text so that no ai system can figure out who actually wrote it and i think it's it's fascinating <laughs> that we yeah. can do both uh yeah that is it's like a anonymous profile <laughs> right nobody knows who it is now that's wicked okay well um to sort of finish off uh, and for anyone listening let's say they would like to go visit the NLP Pandect and improve their knowledge or keep up to date on NLP, what content would you recommend that they get stuck into? Well, I mean, there are quite a few um, great bloggers in the NLP industry that try to really like visualize uh, different approaches to NLP. And I really like that. Uh, like they have very vivid examples. Um, of how a neural network works with sort of very visual representation. So you can, uh, I have, I think most of them on, on the NLP Pandect as well. 
Um, that's a great way to learn about NLP. So, um, I also personally, I also like podcasts a lot. That's also a great way to learn. There are not so many NLP podcasts. There's, I think maybe two or three more that only focus on NLP. And it's also a great way to learn uh, about NLP, if, especially if they like talk about specific paper or some specific advancement in NLP. It's a yeah. great way to learn. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate it a lot as well, because, you know, of course, I didn't know about the NLP pandemic before, and I most certainly will be using it when I'm dealing with clientele. If there's, you know, there's a, a particular requirement they're looking for, and I don't know about it, I'm sure it'll be in your content. <laughs> so I'll definitely be using that. So, uh, no, I find it really useful. And I thank you for that. And I'm sure anyone listening would find it really useful, whether they're just starting out in the in the field, or they're a, an engineering manager, like you said, you've got some some uh, content there for people leading teams and so on, which is fantastic. But um, I really want to thank you for, for for doing this podcast. I've really enjoyed this episode. And I was looking forward to it as well. So uh, for anyone listening, this was the NLP Zone podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Luxford. And uh, today's guest was Ivan Billen. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.